Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. We are coming to you on Monday, July 23rd. Today's episode is going to be sort of a big off-season uh, recap and a lot of thoughts on things that have occurred uh, as far as my big summer league recap and breakdown is going to come in this episode. Um, looking at the Oklahoma City, Atlanta, Philadelphia three-team trade that just went down. The Chicago Bulls uh, matching Zach Levine's offer sheet and signing Jabari Parker. The Brooklyn Nets taking on money from Denver, their free agent signings, their path moving forward. The Philadelphia 76ers situation, how it's unfolded. The Lakers building uh, of their roster around LeBron and the assembling of the overall All-NBA meme team. Um Looking at Indiana's offseason, how they were really able to upgrade uh, their bench from players they had last year to this year. The Memphis Grizzlies with Kyle Anderson uh, and and trading for Garrett Temple as well. And a look at the Sacramento Kings, their weird roster composition, their signing of Nemanja Bjelica, Yogi Ferrell, um, and how in the world they're going to deal with this glut um, that they have at different positions. Um, So let's not waste any time here. Let's just dive right into it. Uh, the first deal that I want to talk about is the three-team trade that just went down um, this past week with Oklahoma City, Atlanta, and Philadelphia. Oklahoma City acquiring Dennis Schroeder and Timothy Luau Cabarro. Atlanta acquiring Carmelo Anthony to be bought out. Um, Justin Anderson and a 2022 lottery-protected first-round pick from Oklahoma City. And the Sixers acquiring Mike Muscala. So... Let's first look at this. I'll get the Sixers out of the way first because it's a very simple rationale for them in this trade. They needed to replace the sort of um, stretch big role that Ilyasova filled for them last year. They were spurned and screwed by Nemanja Bielica, or Bielica, excuse me, um, backing out of his agreed-to one-year deal at the room exception. Mike Miscala... He can play at the five, he can play at the four, he can shoot the ball from three. He fits that role for what they could have gotten at this stage in the summer. He fits that role pretty well. And what they gave up for him, Justin Anderson was nothing more than a locker room morale guy. And Timothy Luau Cabarro was awful last year. And very well, I had thought all along that when the Sixers roster crunch inevitably went down, they would dump Luau Cabarro onto Atlanta or Sacramento with a second round pick attached to him. So... You took two guys who really weren't going to be a big part of their rotation at all, may not have even been a part of the rotation at all. One who is, I don't even know why they picked up Justin Anderson's option. He was just a locker room guy, as I said. Luau Cabrero, extremely disappointing. And they turned it into a guy who can fill the Ilyasova role, a player that they needed. Simple trade. It's a win for them. You get a guy who fits a need. You take two guys who really didn't necessarily even have a set uh wouldn't even have been necessarily guys who would have had a set role on the team this coming season. Let's look at this from Atlanta's standpoint now. This was a fantastic, fantastic trade for the Atlanta Hawks and Travis Schlenk here as their GM. Dennis Schroeder's contract is horrible. He has $46.5 million left over the next three years, over $15 million a year. And with that bloated contract, with the fact that they had Trey Young in there as their franchise guy, had acquired Jeremy Lin earlier in the offseason, I had thought 
that, and based on the quality of player Schroeder is now and his attitude issues and legal issues, I had thought they would have to attach something, whether it be a second, two seconds, a heavily protected first, whatever, a young player. They would have had to attach something to get off of Schroeder's contract. He really had little to no value based off of, you know, again, that contract, his situation on the court, off-court concerns. And the fact that the Hawks really had no leverage as far as, you know, they had Trey Young and Jeremy Lin in place. And they had to get rid of him. It was a known fact around the league. Not only were they able to get off a Schroeder's contract with not without attaching anything to it, they got back a first-round pick, albeit in 2022. They got a first-round pick and got off of Dennis Schroeder's contract without giving up anything with it. You're clearing over $15 million a year for each of the next three years, giving you more cap space and money to allow you to remain flexible and have a ton of optionality in taking on money for assets uh, or doing whatever it is that you want to do as far as building your team moving forward because you will have extreme cap space moving forward in the next couple of seasons. You're allowing yourself to have no obstacle in the way for the franchise guy, Trey Young, to get extremely to get really 28 to 32 minutes per game you know starter minutes you have Jeremy Lin backing him up that's a stable veteran presence you don't want Dennis Schroeder a guy who's very headstrong a guy who needs the ball in his hands to be effective and may have some attitude issues you don't want that to be in the same vicinity as the franchise guy who happens to play the same position as Schroeder um he's a starter Schroeder is a starter quality player Lower tier starting point guards in the league, but nonetheless a starter quality player. So in that sense, you would think, oh, trading him for a first round pick, that's real value. And that's not the case. Schroeder had as pretty almost close to negative value here. If OKC had not had the need to get rid of Carmelo for, you know, the fact that he didn't really fit, didn't want to really buy into the role that he was part of there, and um wanted to make extreme savings on luxury tax and payroll, I don't know where else they could have gotten Schroeder or sent Schroeder to and gotten something back for him. But nonetheless, you're getting rid of over $15 million a year. You took in Carmelo and you're going to buy him out immediately. You're paying him his full $27.9 million figure. Who cares? This year, you're not trying to win any games anyway. You cleared money and you have another pick coming in four years from now. What you did in this trade, getting rid of Schroeder and Mascala, buying out Carmelo, and the only actual player you're getting back is Justin Anderson, who's really an end-of-the-bench guy. You, um, you're you taking guys in Mascala and Schroeder who could help you win games. You're getting rid of them. So you're making yourself worse for this year, which is the objective and goal here. You open up a significant amount of flexibility moving forward, over $15 million a year to be exact. And you get a first-round pick in, which is in a couple years, so you're staggering when the assets that you have, as far as the draft are concerned, are coming in, so it's not a load of them at once. I think that Atlanta, in this specific trade, hit a home run. They did a fantastic, fantastic job here. And if we look at them taking on Jeremy Lin earlier in the summer, in that Atlanta or in the deal with um, Denver salary dumping onto Brooklyn... Which, in hindsight, you know, I at the time had thought, you know, 
Atlanta should have just taken the Fareed and Arthur salary dump for a first and a second. But now I think it's okay that they didn't because they had the space to take in Carmelo and they were able to get off a of Schroeder, which personally, if I get a first this year and a second the following year, or I could get off a of Schroeder and get a first in a few years, you know, even though that first will probably be better this year than the one in 2022, I want to get Schroeder, get off a of Schroeder's contract. So it's okay that they did not take that Denver uh, dump of salary, but I'll get into that later. Um, but overall, Atlanta turned their significant amount of cap space coming into the summer, which was about 27 mil, I think it was. Or no, it was around 20, eh, 24, like 24. They turned that space into a lottery-protected 2022 first, a second-round pick in 2025, and the rights to swap second-round picks in 2023, and Jeremy Lin. So, yes, that second-round pick that's definitely coming to them via Brooklyn in 2025 is a ways, a ways away. And yes, the 2023 second-round swap may not be ultimately that consequential or that beneficial. It may not even happen. But Jeremy Lin, I think for me, with having Trey Young as my franchise guy, he's a veteran mentor who I can put behind Trey Young. I like having him in the same vicinity as Young as far as being a veteran who can help him out. I love, as I mentioned, how they staggered their intake of draft assets. This coming year in 2019, you know, they have their own pick. They're going to challenge Sacramento in terms of being the worst team in the league this year. They have Dallas's pick, um, protect its top five. They're probably, if not likely, going to get that pick probably in the seven to seven or eight to around 11, 12 range. And then they have Cleveland's first, protected top 10. Ultimately, you would think that Cleveland will try like hell to get rid of players to allow them to keep that pick. But if not, that pick's probably in your 12 to 14 range. So you could have, and very well likely may have, three first-round picks this year, all in the lottery, one of which being your own very well and likely in the top three. You have three second-round picks in this draft as well. So you have six picks in this draft. You're going to be taking on or taking in a lot of young players at once. So by waiting a couple years, you're not taking up a ton of roster spots early on, allowing yourself to be more flexible. And in the event that you're able to um, accumulate a lot of talent and be good by then, supplementing that with a first-round pick can allow you to take on a young, intriguing young player, um, a guy who can come in and play right away in a bench role. It gives you options. And I think it's smart to plan as far out as you can, as long as it's not extremely far out. The 2025 second may border on that extremely far out um, threshold. But the 2022 first, I think, is a perfect time frame because you have three firsts in 2019, a first in 20, a first in 21, and then two firsts in 22. I think that balances out perfectly. I I think that they did a solid job as far as taking in draft assets and making proper use of their cap space this year. So overall, decent, solid work by Travis Schlenk. Got in a lot of draft picks, got a good mentor behind Trey Young, and he got off of Dennis Schroeder's contract. Got off Mike Muscala as well, which will allow them to lose more games this year. All right, that's a lot about Atlanta. Let's get into it for Oklahoma City. So obviously Carmelo had to go. There is nothing, there's no um, 
everyone knew that it had to happen and it was going to. I think my thought and a lot of people's initially was they would attach a second to him um, and just trade him into someone's cap space, Atlanta, and not take anything back so they could save the $100 million in payroll and luxury tax combined. That's the maximum amount of savings they could have gotten. But they took back Dennis Schroeder, um, and then they also got Timotei Luau Cabarro from the Sixers. Luau Cabarro, to me, you know, it's a wash. Um, he's, if, he, if he can become the player he showed flashes of in his rookie year two years ago, it's a solid, like, ninth, tenth guy who could choose some threes off the bench. I don't really see him getting many minutes, if any, at all on this team. But let's look at it with Schroeder here. So, in trading Carmelo and taking in Luau Cabarro and Schroeder, they will be saving around 72 to $73 million in payroll and luxury tax. Again, significant savings, but not the maximum amount they could have gotten by not taking on or taking in any players uh, for Carmelo because they could have saved 100 mil in doing in trading for Carmelo and not taking anything back. And they had to give up a first-round pick with it. Now, in 2022, assuming, which you probably would almost, I would assume to be almost a certainty, that Westbrook and George will still be there. That's a. Pl- it's probably going to be a playoff. They're they're probably going to be a playoff team still in 2022. I would be surprised if they're not. So you're giving up essentially a pick around what could be anywhere from 17 to 25, probably around closer to 17 in 2022. Um, as far as Dennis Schroeder's fit with that team, when it comes to a backup. For Russell Westbrook, you know Raymond Felton was there was his backup. Raymond Felton is a guy who he's a veteran minimum guy. I'd rather have him be a guy who can fill out my roster as a body than have an integral role on my team that's going to be a top five team in the West and a playoff team. Dennis Schroeder is, as far as the quality of backup point guard, that is probably the best you can possibly get in a backup role. You're getting a guy who is a starting quality point guard backing up a top five player in the NBA at that position. Now, he's a very headstrong player, and him and Westbrook may clash, but they're not going to be on the court. I, I There's no way that I can see them being able to coexist on the court at the same time, considering um, how Schroeder needs the ball in his hands to be effective, and obviously when Westbrook is on the court, the ball is in his hands deservedly and should go and will go nowhere else. Being able to spell Westbrook with a guy like Dennis Schroeder, just in terms of quality of player, that is fantastic. Now, that's a pure on-court basketball sense. This is a guy who has attitude issues. This is a guy who's very very um, steadfast in believing in himself, believing that he is a high-quality player, which he is. Um, so you're going to have to ensure that he stays happy. You're going to have to ensure that his attitude issues do not seep out and cause conflict in the locker room, or as I mentioned, a potential clash with him and Westbrook. And then you also have to monitor the fact that he has legal issues off the court. So if you can corral the attitude and off-court issues that come with Schroeder and get him to really buy in as far as being that super backup point guard, you've gotten yourself Reggie Jackson all over again. Now we saw how that ended. He wanted to go somewhere else and be his own guy as a starter. But when he was there... There were very few, if any, more effective and higher quality uh, backup point guards in the league than Reggie Jackson. Schroeder is going to be excellent in this role. 
And for OKC, they were taking on, you know, for a team that we had all assumed would really try to lower their payroll and tax combined as much as they could, they took on 15 mil a year for the next three years in Dennis Schroeder as their backup point guard. Their concern, obviously, at this point, sure, they saved a lot of money with Carmelo, but their concern here is not saving money at all costs. Their concern is being the best possible team that they can. Even though they saved $73 million in payroll and luxury tax, they are still paying nearly $300 million, not nearly $300 million, around, you know, around $250, $260, $240 million in that range in payroll and luxury tax combined. This is a very, very expensive team and roster. They're going all in, as they should. This is a team who, in my mind, is probably going to be the fourth best team in the West. I think the Utah is better than them, and I think Oklahoma City is at that four spot, and the Lakers and Spurs will be at five and six. I like that rather than just trying to save all the money they could with Carmelo, which would have been a significant, significant amount, even though Schroeder had a bad contract, they recognized the quality of player they'd get and the significant advantage they would have by getting such a high-quality player in a confined backup role. Great work here by Oklahoma City. I don't buy into the fact that they shouldn't have taken Schroeder because of the contract and the savings that they would not have gotten. I think you're still saving $73 million. You're trying to be as good as you can. Why not get a guy who's probably a starting quality player to back up Russell Westbrook if you can? That's a win. I'm all in on Oklahoma City this year. I think they're going to be the fourth best team in the West. And I think that Dennis Schroeder, as I mentioned, if he buys in, if he stays uh, corralled with his attitude and off-court issues and concerns, that's going to be a dynamite duo with Westbrook and then Schroeder backing him up off the bench. All right, let's move along here away from this three-team trade with Atlanta, Oklahoma City, and Philadelphia. Um, Let's head over to Chicago. The Chicago Bulls this offseason matching a four-year, $78 million offer sheet for Zach Levine that came from the Sacramento Kings. And then um, after his qualifying offer was rescinded, signing Jabari Parker to a one-year deal for $20 million with a team option for $20 million uh, in that second year. Let's talk about Levine first. I think the idea and the actual matching of Zach Levine's offer sheet is a point that you will get really strong opinions both ways on. And I think that there is merit to both sides of this argument as far as, which is my stance in that Zach Levine was an integral, if not the integral key part in the return for Jimmy Butler. And even though the figure, $19 million a year, is much higher than you would like, you'd prefer it to be around 14 or $15 million a year, you had to match it because you could not lose him for nothing. That's one side of the argument, and that's my take on it, which I'll get into. I also, though, I see why people's uh, take and side of it is, regardless of how important he was to that trade return, and regardless of how good he is, and regardless of the fact that you'd be losing him for nothing, you cannot pay that quality of player that much money for four years because he is not a $19 million a year player at this stage and may never be a $19 million a year player. For me, I, again, I reiterate that I believe they had to match it. In a perfect world, you would have been able to re-sign Zach Levine at a $14 million a year or $15 million a year figure. I think that's what fair 
um, per year salary would have been on a deal long term for Levine. Um, even with that, even though Laurie Markinen became, because of how good he is and he's going to be fantastic, became the crown jewel of that Jimmy Butler trade, you cannot lose a, such an integral piece of that trade and such a high-quality player like Levine for nothing. Now, he has his faults, he has his concerns. He is a negative presence on the defensive side of the court. He offers you very little as far as perimeter defense is concerned. On the offensive side of the ball, he has elite, extreme athleticism. He showed the ability to be a very good, efficient shooter when he was with Minnesota, and he has the potential, I think, overall to be a dynamite all-around scorer offensively. If you can keep that three-point shooting percentage to around 38%, um, moving forward, a guy who can become more efficient as he grows, and if he stays healthy, another concern because he has gotten hurt with the shoulder injury and with the torn ACL uh, in the past, if you can allow him to grow as a player, to become more efficient, to refine his offensive game and keep that three-point shooting around that 38% mark, he, in theory and in a perfect um, scenario, becomes your sort of go-to all-around perimeter scorer because you have your um, big man who can play inside and out, kind of like Porzingis does in Laurie Markkinen. Laurie Markkinen basically had an equivalent year to Kristaps Porzingis and in my mind is a better three-point shooter. He's going to be dynamite, but that's besides the point. In Zach Levine, you can't lose him for nothing because even if he is not a $19 million a year player, which he is not at this point, and that's not really debatable. He's clearly not. And even if he never becomes a $19 million a year player, again, very possible he does not. There's a chance he does. This guy was acquired for Jimmy Butler as a guy who you were going to slot in as a foundational building block of this rostered organization moving forward. You knew in acquiring him that you were going to have to pay within a year a huge amount to him to keep him for the long term. They went into this trade knowing that having to pay him a per-year figure that's likely higher than what he is as a player right now and may ever will be was a possibility. They knew that coming into this. And I think with the idea, this was not an unexpected thing in my mind. You always knew the threat of an offer sheet was coming or the fact that he could have wanted an exorbitant figure. With that in mind, knowing he was always going to want that figure, even with it being higher than it should be for a player like him, you had to match it. Because you lose Zach Levine for nothing, you would have essentially traded Jimmy Butler, I like Chris Dunn, but... You would have essentially traded Laurie Mark or for him, Jimmy Butler, for Laurie Markkinen, an exciting, good young player who will get better, and an average, a guy who's going to max out as an average point guard. And you would have had a guy in Levine who has the chance to become a very good offensive all-around player, but by letting him go because you didn't want to pay him when you knew you were going to have to anyway, you would basically be taking away what you had traded for the opportunity for, which in that sense I'm saying you would have traded for the opportunity to get Zach Levine, a guy who could become an all-around elite offensive scorer, you would have traded for that opportunity and you would have been getting rid of that even when you had significant amount of cap space, you would have been getting rid of that because you had to pay him more than you had wanted to when you knew you were going to. 
Do I think that Zach Levine will ever become a $19 million a year player? I think it's a toss-up because the defensive side of the ball, as I mentioned, is negative all around. And in conjunction with Jabari Parker, as I'll get into next, you know, that's going to really, this team is going to suffer greatly on the defensive end of the ball and it's going to really need to light it up offensively. I believe that Zach Levine can become, with his elite athleticism and what he's already shown as far as flashes of his three-point shooting, I think he could become even better offensively. How much better? I don't know. Do I think he'll ever make an all-star team? No, probably not. Do I think he'll be an above-average, you know, pretty good player? Yes, I think he will get better. I don't think he will become an all-star. Do I think he's worth $19 million a year right now? As I already mentioned, no. Do I think he's worth 14 or $15 million a year? Yes. So for a team like Chicago, who's really not going to attract free agents anyway, is that $4 million a year difference worth giving up the opportunity to see if Zach Levine can become that elite all-around offensive scorer that you traded for or you traded for the opportunity to have? It's not. You have to match it and you have to take that chance. And if it doesn't pan out, yeah, okay, your your salary cap books are $5 million a year short of what you should have or 4 or $5 million a year short of the space you should have because of what you would want to pay Levine in a perfect world. I don't think it's that dire or that extreme based on the fact that I think the per year difference in what you'd want to pay him and what you are paying him is only four or five mil a year. And I think he will get better. Um, Let's move on to Jabari Parker here and I'll expand upon my point with Zach Levine. Jabari Parker, as I mentioned, one year deal for $20 million, a team option for $20 million in the second year. I saw this as a why not. The only thing they were going to do with $20 million um, was they would have taken on Carmelo and sent out Cristiano Felicio. And who, who knows if Oklahoma City would have even been willing to take Felicio because even though they took Schroeder, who makes $15 million a year for three years, he is still an incredibly serviceable, high-quality player. Cristiano Felicio is absolutely not that. So who knows if that was even a legitimate, realistic possibility or opportunity. Why not take the chance in Jabari Parker? I know he, as I mentioned with Zach Levine, I know he is a negative defensively and contributes very little. I know that he has torn ACLs twice. I know there's extreme injury concerns, and I know that they really didn't need to pay him $20 million because who else were they bidding against? All I know is that I think that Jabari Parker has the potential and ability to be an offensive difference maker, a guy who can be kind of a lesser version of a Paul Pierce Carmelo type who can get his shot on the perimeter and may not, even though he doesn't have athleticism, can use his strength um, to score on the interior as well. I think he has that ability to be able to be just a guy who can throw the ball to and he can get you the shot that you need at that point in time. And I see no harm with it being a team option on the second year, really only being a one-year deal. I see no harm in taking this chance. Again, why not? Um, That perimeter defense is going to suffer a lot this season. The Chicago Bulls are going to be extremely extremely reliant on Wendell Carter Jr. in his rookie season. Chris Dunn, 
average solid defender. Zach Levine, awful defensively. Jabari Parker, awful defensively. And is also going to be playing at the three when he is really more suited to play at the four um, based on his lack of athleticism. Lori Markin at the four, who is big and has good size but really isn't much of a defender. Wendell Carter is going to be relied on to be able to switch it, switch on to any player from one to five, which, as I'll get into my summer league recap, he showed he has the ability to do. He'll be relied on to be that force uh, on the interior because that perimeter defense is going to stop nothing as far as if teams want to penetrate and get into the paint. You're going to have to rely on him in all facets of your defense. Can he step up and handle that responsibility? Sure. But the problem this creates for Chicago is you are going to need to score 125, 130 points a game to win games. You're going to have to light it up. You're going to have to get 23 points per game from Zach Levine and 20 points per game from Jabari Parker. You are going to really, really rely, and then also a lot from Laurie Markman, which you're going to get anyway. But you're going to be extremely reliant on Wendell Carter on the defensive end. But you're also going to be really banking on Parker and Levine, stepping it up on the offensive side. If Jabari Parker shows that, hey, his body is basically broken, he gets nicked up and banged up a lot um, and misses games, or if he gets another significant injury, or if he just doesn't fit playing three with the roster composition they already have, then fine, you decline his option and he's gone. It's a no-lose situation. You have no significant long-term commitment unless he really shows out and you pick up his option for one more year. Now, in doing that, you run the risk of if he's really good, you pick his option up for another year and he's really good, you're going to have to pay him more than $20 million a year after that to keep him for the long-term past these two seasons. And at that point, it may not be worth it, but you may be locked into paying him that because you've had him for two years and he's shown that he's a capable player um, who, even though he has his uh, faults defensively, you don't really want to be knocked, locked into a guy like Jabari Parker for more than $20 million a year for a significant long period of time. So you're running the risk of, even if he's good for two years, you're going to lock him into a, you're going to have to be forced to locking him into a contract for the long term that you really don't want to have to do, or else you're going to lose him for nothing. Which, as I mentioned with Zach Levine, you know, it's a hard uh, question to juggle as far as losing them for nothing or keeping them at a higher figure. In Levine's case, it was fine. For Parker, he's already at a figure that's too high for him. If he went even past that, it's not worth it. But they'd be forced to keep him. So you run that risk there. But again, if he's good, great. You took a flyer on a hometown guy. The fans are going to love him and are going to come to games more to see him. He went to Simeon High School like Derrick Rose did. Why not? Now, how good do I think they'll be? I think what may happen with Chicago is by way of signing Parker, and you have Levine back for a full year, and you have Carter now, I think what may happen is they may end up getting stuck in the middle. Um, Because I look at the Eastern Conference, the Knicks obviously are worse. Atlanta, as I mentioned earlier, could very well be the worst team in the league. Cleveland's going to be worse. Orlando's going to be worse. Brooklyn, going to be worse. That's five teams right there, which puts Chicago at the nine seed. You're going to be stuck in the middle, and in the very off chance that they somehow can get that 8 seed, you're going to get swept immediately by Boston or Toronto. So, even though you're taking that flyer on Parker, you're taking away potentially your ability to get a higher draft pick to add a cheap, long-term, very good young player like they did in this past draft with Wendell Carter with the 7th pick. 
But overall, I'm okay with taking on Parker because it's a one-year deal, and it's really a no-lose situation. The only losses that could come um, are having to is him being good, which is a plus, but then having to pay him way more than you want to down the line. All right. Um, moving forward now from Chicago, let's get on to Brooklyn. Uh, specifically, we'll talk about Brooklyn taking on Kenneth Fareed and Darrell Arthur from Denver, um, and in doing so, getting a top 12 protected first from Denver for this year and a second in 2020, and then moving on and trading Darrell Arthur to Phoenix for Jared Dudley and a top 35 protected second from Phoenix. Sean Marks, man, Sean Marks with Brooklyn has done an unbelievable job. He took a situation which, this is a phrase I like to use a lot, he took chicken shit and turned it into chicken salad. He took the worst situation in the league and now has hit on so many picks in the 20s, hit on so many trades, and has set them up to have cap space next year in the first year after, or in the first season they will have, after they have their own pick, where they will get a top now a top quality player in that top 10 of the draft. They will have cap space moving in or moving on after that draft into this coming summer. You will have your own pick. I think they'll pick will probably be around eight, like it was this past year, maybe nine, um, no worse than ten. And Denver's pick it's protected top twelve. I see Denver's pick being anywhere from fourteen to seventeen. So, with how Sean Marks has hit on picks in the twenties, like Karis Levert, like Jared Allen, like he did in trading uh. Um, Plumlee for Rondé Hollis Jefferson. If we're seeing how good he's done with picks in the 20s, what can Sean Marks do with a pick in the top 10 and a pick in the mid-teens? How could you bet against him making an incredibly smart, good pick at both of those spots? And in the case of Darrell Arthur, which then got turned into Jared Dudley in a top 35 protected second from Phoenix... Phoenix is going to be probably a bottom five team in the league, but in the off chance that they're not, the 36th, 37th pick in the uh, in the second round, as we saw in this past draft this year with guys like Mitchell Robinson and Jalen Brunson, you can get really good players in that early part of the second round. And again, how can you bet against Sean Marks when it comes to picking guys in the 20s and 30s of the draft? You can't. So they basically turned cap space that they would have before they actually completed the signings of Joe Harris and Ed Davis into Kenneth Fareed, who I think will get some minutes on the team this year in a backup-ish big role. You know, obviously Ed Davis is that main backup to Jared Allen, but I think Fareed will be able to get in that Quincy AC role that uh, will be able to play in the role that Quincy AC played last year, albeit at lesser minutes. So they got Fareed, they got a pick that will be between 14 and 17 in the first round this year potentially a very high second round pick this year and a second round pick in 2020. That is fantastic. And then we look at their free agent signings. I'm very happy that they kept Joe Harris. Two years, $8 million a year. Harris is someone they can really hang their hats on as far as someone who they cultivated and helped grow and allowed to blossom because they got Harris basically for nothing. And with him on Brooklyn, he became one of the best three-point shooters and best three-point shooters in the league as just a backup uh, two-guard off the bench who can just come in and snipe threes. 
that is entirely on them as far as their player development and cultivating him. For Ed Davis, I had mentioned this on my Twitter, at Brad Clear, K-L-I-E-R underscore. Ed Davis, to me, is the perfect backup big. He is, in my mind, arguably the best backup center in the NBA. He rebounds well, he plays good defense, he can finish at the rim, he plays hard, he's a good veteran presence, he has every trait you could possibly want in an affordable backup center. He is the prototype for a backup big. One of the most efficient centers and backup centers in the whole NBA last year. He was amazing on Portland last year. And he's been a really rock-solid presence in the league for a long time now. And you're putting him as the veteran mentor behind Jarrett Allen, who showed a lot of promise last year and is only going to get better, and you're only paying him on a one-year deal for 4.4 or 4.5 mil at the room exception? How could you not do that? How could you be any way, how could you in any way criticize anything that Sean Marks has done this offseason? Even lower to your signings, Shabazz Napier, again, another guy from Portland, as an end-of-the-bench um Offensive-minded scoring point guard. I like Shabazz Napier in that role a lot. Uh, Trevion Graham, again, one-year deal uh, or two-year deal where the second year is non-guaranteed, the first year is fully guaranteed. As an again, end of the year, end of the bench guy. Why not? Every move Sean Marks seems to make either hits or has significant promise. And now in the final, they finally have their own pick. They'll be in the top ten. They're going to have another very good pick in that 14-17 range on top of it. And they're going to have potentially maximum two max contract cap space. Um, it'll be interesting to see if D'Angelo Russell has a good year and can play like he did in the first half of last year before he got hurt. Because when he came back from that injury, uh, he really had a very poor year from then on out. Um, he held the ball too long. He made bad decisions, was taking bad shots, wasn't as good of a playmaker. And his con, you know, how do you value him, and how do you um, decide what his worth is long term? Um, you know, is that a guy you want to pay fifteen million dollars a year for the next four years? I don't know. But the point is, they're set up in a very good way for the future. This trade with Denver was fantastic for them, turning a guy who just took on as a salary dump from Denver into Jared Dudley, a guy who can shoot threes very well at that tweener spot could help them because they need help at that tweener spot. You know, last year they really only had to only had DeMari, uh, DeMari Carroll in that spot. They drafted DeZan and Musa, added Dudley. They could trade Dudley to a contender uh, midseason, got a potentially a high second out of that. Wins all around here. Um, as far as the Denver side of that trade with Brooklyn, I think this is something that Danny LaRue and Nate Duncan talked a lot in the Dunked On podcast. Denver's ownership cares more about the finances and the avoidance of luxury tax at all costs than the ability to win long-term. Fareed, Arthur, and Chandler, Wilson Chandler, who they trade to the Sixers, um, and in doing so attached a second-round pick and second-round pick swap to him, They all those guys are on one-year deals. If you want to be competitive, you have three guys who can, well, not really Fareed because of having Jokic, and he's really undersized at being a five, and you can't really play him at the four. So in Darrell Arthur is a guy who could shoot the ball from the perimeter as a four, and Wilson Chandler, who's a borderline starter quality wing, who could really play three, four, maybe a little bit of two. You traded all three of those guys 
to get out of the luxury tax. And in doing so, you gave up a first, which would be in the middle of the round, where you could have gotten a solid, dependable role player or maybe even a starter at a cheap rate for a long time. You gave up two seconds and potentially a swap on a third second, all because you had to avoid the luxury tax for one season. Those moves are not indicative of an organization that is solely about winning. That is indicative of an organization that cares about avoiding the luxury tax regardless of if it impacts their roster negatively. And then if we're looking at that, I think you have to look at the moves that Denver's front office made with knowing that the luxury tax had to be avoided. How can you pay uh, how can you pay Plumlee thir- over $13 million a year as a backup center when you have Jokic when you know that you can't get to the luxury tax at all costs? How can you... Well, actually, Will Barton was a good contract. I like paying Will Barton at that rate, but at that point, it becomes a measure of would you rather have Will Barton for four years um, at $12, $13 million a year, or would you rather have that first-round pick in the 14 to 17 range? If you're up against the luxury tax like that and have to avoid it at all costs, you could argue, even though I like Will Barton a lot, that in the long term and in the macro, it would have been a better move to not re-sign Barton maybe take a loss in competitiveness for a season or maybe even just keep Wilson Chandler because he would have slot in at that Barton spot. You would have kept the second um, and kept the second swap. Maybe you could have even done it where you kept your first. You could have let Barton go and kept the first and maybe for the long term you would have gotten an equal player to Barton, but you would have been paying him on a rookie sale contract for four years. Again, I liked keeping Barton, but I think that that argument definitely has merit. You can tell that the Kroenke family, you know, they own... Uh, Arsenal, they own the Avalanche. You can tell the Nuggets are not, in terms of winning and on-court success, their priority is not that. The priority is the finances. And that's disappointing um, for a good team in Denver's situation who, if you added an elite talent to that team or went all out in improving that team at all costs, that could be a team who could get up to that six seed in the West, uh, maybe even five seed in the West. So it's just disappointing, but at the same time, you have to commend Brooklyn for capitalizing on that, getting a first and a second, turning one of the players they got into a second and another player who they could potentially trade for another second, um, and then making great signings in re-signing Joe Harris and signing Ed Davis. Um, very happy that they did this. Very happy they continue to make good moves. And I think the Brooklyn Nets are going to become very good a lot quicker than people think. If they hit on those two picks in the first round of this draft coming this year, probably around eight in the 14 to 17 range, and then sign a max free agent or two with that, or even just make smart free agent signings along with that, there is no reason they couldn't make the playoffs in the 2019-2020 season. All right, enough about Brooklyn now. Uh, Let's move on here. I'm going to touch on the Memphis Grizzlies real quick. Um, they signed and successfully acquired Kyle Anderson on a four-year offer sheet for $37 million. I get why San Antonio did not match it. You know, over $9 million a year, um, for Kyle Anderson is probably too pricey, but at the same time, you know, I know he's not the most athletic guy and a little slow and basically, you know, a much better version of Boris Diaw, but you look at metrics as far as San Antonio the last couple years with Anderson on the court. They were consistently a better team. Um, again, I understand fully why they did not match it. That figure is too high. I'm just saying this as far as what Memphis got. Memphis got a guy in Kyle Anderson who 
slides right into the three where they needed someone to occupy that spot. He can impact the game in lots of different ways. Um, he's a good defensive presence. Again, not the most athletic guy, but he can play defense, can rebound a little bit. Not a bad scorer. Impacts the game positively in a plus-minus sense, uh, in a defensive efficiency sense. He's just a very solid player to have, and I guess Ed, when he's on the court, the team around him, it's not that he makes the team better, it's just he's an easy guy to fit into lots of different roster uh, lineup combinations that he just is a player who you can thrive with on the court and doesn't really offer you, outside of athleticism, any negatives whatsoever. I like the signing. Um, I think it points to the fact that they were incredibly dumb in not trading Tyreek Evans last year. We said at the time, you know, he signed with Indiana, who I'll get into in a little bit. Why in the world did you not trade Tyreek Evans? You could have gone Yabaselli and two seconds. Yabaselli, an intriguing young player. You still could have done all the moves you made this year. I don't understand it. They also made another move, um, trading a second-round pick, uh, Deontay Davis and Ben McLemore to Sacramento. I almost said Seattle. Oh, boy. Uh, to Sacramento for Garrett Temple. Garrett Temple on Sacramento, there's no role for him there. A veteran who's in the last year of his contract on a team that wants to cultivate, or in theory, wants to cultivate and grow young players. I think Temple's a good, solid player as a 3 and D guy who's a good veteran presence. Um, I think people don't realize that because he's been stuck in the wasteland that is Sacramento for a couple years now. Um, massive upgrade over Ben McLemore. Deontay Davis, what room was there for him to get minutes with uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. and Mark Gasol patrolling the front court? I think Temple is going to be a very good 3 and D for them. You know, you look at that shooting guard spot, you have Dylan Brooks, or uh, the 3 and the 2, you have Dylan Brooks, uh, you have Baldwin, you have Temple there now. I think that's a good mix of guys with Marcus Gasol and Jaron Jackson, the aforementioned Kyle Anderson, uh, Mike Conley finally back. They're not a playoff team by any means, but I think Memphis is going to surprise te- uh, surprise people and be a pretty solid team this year. Um, I think that they may be a little bit better than the Los Angeles Clippers. So, you know, I think the 10 seed in the West is not out of the question for Memphis. Let's stay in the West here. Let's go to the Sacramento Kings. Oh, boy, the Sacramento Kings. Um, so, first they drafted Marvin Bagley instead of Luka Doncic. Uh, I'll get into that later, but spoiler, terrible decision. Um, we're able to, they signed Nemanja Bielitsa, a guy who I like a lot, very good stretch four, who can shoot the ball well from three, shot 42% from three last year. A guy who'd signed for one or two years at the room exception rate. They signed him to a three-year deal for $20.5 million with that third year non-guaranteed. But nonetheless, over $6 million a year for Nemanja Bielitsa? And then went on to sign Yogi Ferrell to a two-year deal for $6.2 million, or $6.2 million overall, $3.1 million a year. The Sacramento Kings just make no sense. Look at this team, right? They have a glut of centers, a glut of power forwards. Um, Yogi Ferrell, they have Darren Fox and Frank Mason already at the point guard spot. Um, and Yogi Ferrell is, when he gets played off ball, is way too small to be a two. So he's really a one, but you have two guys there already. You know, look, look just look at this roster composition. Um, let's, let's just pull it up right here. This 15-man roster. At the center spot, Willie Cauley-Stein, Harry Giles, who had a great summer league. I'll get into him later. Costa Kufis, three guys who all need minutes. You look at the power forward spot. 
Marvin Bagley, who you just drafted second overall, the wrong guy to pick, but because you picked him second overall, you better play him a significant amount of minutes. You have Zach Randolph, who really has no place on this team whatsoever, and it would be in their best interest to just buy him out, but they're obviously not going to at this point. You still have Scal BCA, who I think there is a lot of promise to him still as just being a serviceable power forward big type in the league for years to come. You got Deontay Davis, who they very well may end up cutting, but if they keep him, there's no path for him to getting minutes whatsoever. And then you look at their wing rotation, you know, Bogdan Bogdanovich and Buddy Heald as role-playing outside shooting guys. Fine, I like them. Justin Jackson also. He can shoot from the perimeter, I like him as well. But you have Amon Shumpert there, and you have Ben McLemore there. Gross. And then at that point guard spot, De'Aaron Fox, Frank Mason, and then you decide to spend 3.1 mil on Yogi Ferrell, who I like a lot, but where in the world does he fit on this team? And then the aforementioned Nemanja Bielitsa, he's a four, but they're going to try to play him at the three, which good luck to that because he is absolutely not going to be able to do that. This roster makes no sense. I don't understand what their objective is. The Kings are just always going to king. So I guess in their minds, good on them for getting Bielitsa after he walked away from the Sixers, but then paying him over $6 million a year and probably going to play him out of position. You know, Vlade Divac was talking about how Marvin Bagley could play 3, 4, and 5. In what world can Marvin Bagley play the 3, 4, or 5? I, I, I don't get it. I don't know. I don't get it. I really don't understand what their move is here. What? Obviously, they're trying to build up a lot of young players, but you have so many players, and there are a lot of good young pieces there. Like Harry Giles, I like a lot. Willie Cauley-Stein, I like a lot. Scala BCA, I like a lot. Um, Justin Jackson, Bogdan Bogdanovich, I like a lot as well. But how are you going to be able to give these guys the necessary amount of minutes to develop and grow when you have so much of the so many guys who play similar positions and you have these positional gluts like they do? I, it just makes no sense to me. But then again, the Sacramento Kings have made no sense for years, so I guess this should not have been unexpected. All right. Um, let's touch on the Indiana Pacers here. Uh, this will be really quick here with the Pacers. Look at this team last year. You know, if they had not blown a few games in that first round against Cleveland, they would have beaten them in the first round of the playoffs. Really emerged as a solid team in the East. They're probably going to be the 5 seed in the East this year. Um, Victor Oladipo is a superstar. You have Miles Turner and Demonis Sabonis. You have Bogdanovich. You have Darren Collison still, you have Corey Joseph, and you look what they did. They lost Lance Stevenson and Big Al Jefferson and then took in Tyreek Evans, Doug McDermott, and Kyle O'Quinn. Upgrades all across. Kyle O'Quinn to me, you know, Big Al barely even had a role on this team. I know Miles Turner and Sabonis got the minutes at the five, but Kyle O'Quinn is in that same mold of Ed Davis in he is the prototype backup big. You know, as far as production, he can rebound. He's a great rebounder and defender. He can uh, he can actually shoot the ball from three a little bit too. But he's also a guy who you want around your team in the playoffs because he is a he's a guy who will put his he will just wear it on his sleeve. He will be tough and intimidate the other team. You cannot get anything over on Kyle O'Quinn. Great locker room presence, great on court presence, great veteran presence, and actually can produce. Um, he can rebound well. 
can shoot the ball from the perimeter and play good interior defense, and he's your third center, and he's pretty much a prototype backup big, and you got him to replace a guy who barely got any minutes on your team who's now in China and Al Jefferson, win. Tyreek Evans to replace Lance Stevenson, a guy who was one of the best, or a guy who had a career year last year, and in theory, if he plays like that this year, again, there's injury concerns always with Tyreek Evans, but as a guy who can lead your second unit, you know, alongside Corey Joseph and Sabonis, at $12 million a year for one year, when you're replacing Lance Stevenson, Lance Stevenson played a lot of minutes for this Indiana team last year. The problem with Lance Stevenson, though, is, as their GM Kevin Pritchard said, at times he's the best player on the court for you, at times he's the best player on the court for the other team. You're replacing the enigma that is Lance Stevenson with Tyreek Evans, who at his best is probably going to be a legitimate six-man-of-the-year candidate, win. And then Doug McDermott. You know, I'm not crazy about Doug McDermott, but he has a defined role of just being able to snipe threes. Three years, 22 mil. Per year, it's over 7 mil. It's probably too much. But again, just a dependable three-point sniper off the bench. Indiana upgraded in every signing they made. They made a good pick in Aaron Holiday. They got deeper. They got better bench players. So it was quantity and quality. They were already good to begin with last year. I'm very excited to see how much better they will be this year as a result of these signings. All right. So let's get now into my big Summer League breakdown. Um, so for me with Summer League, I don't put... I, Summer League, you have to really watch how much stock you put in to the performances you watch. What I use Summer League to do is I put stock into you know, how a young player plays or how a guy who has gone through struggles in his first or second year plays. Um. Because you're playing against inferior competition, you're playing against a lot of unproven, you know, fringe NBA players, and you're playing against first-round, second-round picks. You can see tendencies arise, and you can see just traits that are there. Um, so for me, I'm not going to go through, you know, a defined list, but you know, players or combos of players who are rookies or second or third-year players who stood out to me in good or bad ways, what I liked about it, etc. So the three things that impressed me the most in summer league this year: number one was Mo Bamba and Jonathan Isaac on the court together defensively. They did this multiple times, but when they played Memphis, and they were playing Jaron Jackson Jr., who had perhaps one of the best performances of anyone in Summer League this year, definitely, um, at worst, second best of all the rookies, probably behind Kevin Knox. Eh, probably third best behind Kevin Knox. When, the point is, this big, who really is a, was a great dominant player in Summer League, um, great young player who shows a ton of promise in inside-outside scoring, he could get nothing going on Mohamed Bamba and Jonathan Isaac. They stifled him every time in the post. They were blocking shots. They were harassing him. Or Jonathan Isaac's case, harassing him on the perimeter. He couldn't penetrate at all. And this applied to all of Memphis's team. When Mo Bamba and Jonathan Isaac are on the court at the same time, you cannot get to the paint and score. You have Mo Bamba with his massive um, NBA number one wing, longest wingspan in the NBA. 
He's able to just his mere he's an incredible shot blocker and rim protector, but even outside of that, his mere presence alters and disallows so many shots. Um if he you can't get position on him because even though he is thinner and you can bang around on him, his wingspan and length, you just can't really get an unaltered shot off against him. And Jonathan Isaac, six foot ten, wildly athletic, super long as well, he can alter shots at the rim and guard guys in the paint but can also step out onto the perimeter and lock a guy down there as well. Jonathan Isaac has this two-part element to his defensive ability where you could put him against fours um, in the paint, or you could put him against fours or threes who operate on the perimeter. You could even play him in spurts at the five. He can thrive on the perimeter and in the interior at an elite level defensively. Mo Bamba alters every shot that comes into the paint even against guys like Jaron Jackson, who are who very much could end up being one of the best players to come out of this draft, he got he I think it was three for ten or something like that playing up against Bamba and Isaac. Bamba's mere presence alters shots. Try rebounding against him. You can't rebound against this guy because of how long he is. I know a lot of people like to um point out to the fact that Bamba is, you know, skinny and needs to fill out and all that. His length and wingspan makes him such an enormous factor with rebounding. You, it comes to a lob. You could throw that ball up anywhere from like five. You could throw that ball six feet away in front of Mo Bamba. He'll be able to reach it and dunk that down. You have so much leeway on the offensive end with him um, as far as just throwing him lobs and getting shots for him uh, when he can finish near the, um, when he can finish in the paint. Because with his enormous wingspan, you don't have to make the most accurate pinpoint pass. Throw in his general vicinity, he's going to get it. And if he is able to ensure that his three-point shot becomes consistent and he can hit it with efficiency and consistently at around a 33, 34, 35% rate, how in the world, when they get their solid point guard on that team, how in the world are you going to be able to guard Mo Bamba on a pick and roll? Step out into the perimeter on him. He'll run right by you. Lob. Easy points. Try to cover so that he won't be able to get the lob. He can step out and hit a three. He has the potential to be unstoppable in the pick and roll. And then he will also have the potential, as I've said many times before, this is a guy who's going to win a Defensive Player of the Year award multiple times and is going to be an all-NBA defender. And as we saw in Summer League, every single bit of those assessments and evaluations was able to be seen. If he puts on 15 pounds so he's even stronger, he will have zero, zero weaknesses in his game defensively and on the boards. I was so impressed by how just his length and size and mere presence deterred such a high-quality player in Jaron Jackson. I was impressed by the fact that really no team was comfortable going in the paint against him um, at any point where he was on the court as a center. Um, well, he wouldn't play anywhere else. But when he was on the court in the middle there, he had that effect where guys like Tyson Chandler have or Rudy Gobert or Joel Embiid will have where their presence in the paint takes away the other team's entire ability to penetrate and get shots at the rim and makes life easier for every single defender around him. And you look at Orlando's team. You know, put Jonathan Isaac on the perimeter and Mo Bamba in the middle. Or put Jonathan Isaac at the four, Bamba at the five, Aaron Gordon out on the three, you have Melvin Frazier out there as well as a long athletic guy. Um, Justin Jackson as well from Maryland. This is a team that is built 
with long athletic guys who can defend very well. Uh, I don't really know how Gordon, Isaac, and Bamba will fit together. Um, I think for Isaac, you know, we saw his athleticism and his good defensive ability. We saw flashes on the offensive end of how his uh, athleticism allows him to get to the rim at will. His shot was a little better. If he can get that three-point shot consistent and can sort of build an all-around offensive game um, and make him more of a two-way guy, I think that will open up a lot as far as him, Gordon, and Bamba on the court at the same time. Because right now, you know, Gordon's a four. He's played at the three for so many years, and for so many years we knew he was out of position, and he thrived at the four this year. Um, So defensively, it'll be no issue at all. It's just a matter of how you make that spacing work offensively between Gordon and Isaac. Because if Bamba doesn't develop that outside shot, you can just stick him in the middle. If he develops that outside shot, you have him as a perimeter threat in the pick and roll. But if Isaac doesn't develop that consistent offensive game and consistent outside shot, that makes it really hard to operate for Aaron Gordon. But nonetheless, so, so impressed by Isaac and Bamba on the defensive end and on the offensive end. And the two of them together is going to be a nightmare, an absolute nightmare for opposing teams when they have the ball and Isaac and Bamba are on defense. All right, keeping it going with Summer League. Um, let's get in to the New York Knicks, Kevin Knox, Mitchell Robinson, Frank Nealakina. Kevin Knox, oh my goodness, this guy is going to be amazing. Um, every single trait you could possibly want in a wing prospect at this stage in their career, Knox has. Knox is 18 years old still. He was incredibly young, and you watched him in summer league. He was poised. He was confident. Um, he played well with the ball in his hands as far as you know, being able to get his own shot driving to the rim or um, shooting from range or pulling up. He was confident and smart off the ball, making cuts, lots of movement, a high basketball IQ. Um we knew the defensive ability. He's long. He's athletic. He can stay in front of threes. He can guard fours. Um, he gives you a lot of flexibility and optionality and versatility um, in lineup combinations because he's able to be switched onto so many different positions and stay in front of guys at the four, at the three. Um, even at the two in a very small spurt, you could probably throw him in front of a guy or have him switched onto them. Um, outside shooting is there. The ability to get to the rim is there can jump out of the gym. One thing that I also really liked with that athleticism and jumping out of the gym, he's a huge lob threat. You could throw that ball up to him in the general vicinity of the rim, he's getting it. Um, in transition, when he came downhill with the ball in his hands in transition, he was unstoppable. He's an absolute menace in transition. Um, everything I just said, is that is there? there's nothing else you could want in a defense or in a wing prospect, a two-way wing prospect at 18 years old, a guy who's 6'9, long and athletic, has all these traits, and he's only going to get better. And I know it's summer league, but you look at those traits, you know, the defensive versatility, the threat at being a lot a threat um on lobs, being a menace in transition, shooting the ball from the outside, getting to the rim. These are traits that are going to allow him to succeed at a high level in the NBA as he grows and becomes better. Because, again, even though 
it was easier for him to magnify these traits and really dominate because he was against inferior competition in summer league. When he gets better and matures his game, and those traits continue to improve and improve, this guy could very well end up being a perennial all-star. He has every facet of a modern two-way wing who could play the three or the four, can score, can play top-notch D against the other team, can jump out of the gym. Again, every trade I just said, everything is positive. No negatives to take away from him in summer league. He is going to be and is an absolute stud. And then moving forward with the Knicks, um, Mitchell Robinson. I remember when the Knicks came up at 36 in the draft. They were around pick 33, you know, when Brunson just got picked. I said... They have to pick Mitchell Robinson. Mitchell Robinson had first-round pick talent. Um, The only reason he went in the second round was because he basically sat out for a year. But great size, great length. He's raw, but he showed, one, elite protection of the rim. And on top of that, one thing I found very impressive, he was very good at blocking jump shots. You know, he would close out on a guy shooting a three, and he would be able to block their shot with ease. Um... He runs the floor very well. He's athletic. He can he can get end-to-end with no issue. Um, a lob threat as well because of how long he is. And in the paint, a guy who can operate in the paint, you know, he's at a very raw level. But I think with, culti- with cultivating it and really allowing him to develop, he can have a solid offensive game. The defensive ability is there. It's just a matter of maturing it and allowing it to really become consistent against high-quality NBA talent. But... A guy that long who alters so many shots at the ri- so many shots at the rim, and can have the weird but unique and very good trait of being able to close out and block three point shots. You know, is that trait going to um, translate against high quality NBA talent? Maybe not. But the fact that he was able, in theory, to do it shows you how much of a threat he can be in terms of getting from the post out to that three-point line to close out on a shooter quickly and to actually affect that shot with how long his wingspan is and get in their face. Because a lot of guys, they can get there, or they may not be able to get there from the paint to the three-point line to really actually affect that shot when the guy's wide open and they need to close out on him. Mitchell Robinson showed he can do that because he was able to block shots in closing out from guys from the paint to the three-point line. As I mentioned with running the floor well, that makes him a consistent lob threat in transition. Um, Supremely athletic, end-to-end, side-to-side, very long, good size. Um, A consistent offensive game will take time, but I think the seeds of it being possible are there. I see Mitchell Robinson as someone who can be a dependable player for the long term in the NBA. I don't know if he's a starter. I don't know if he's a really dependable, solid backup big but the rim protection and defense is there. The ability to dominate on the glass is there. The ability to score is there. And that closeout speed and end-to-end athleticism is there as well. There is a lot to like with Mitchell Robinson. I was very, very impressed by him. And all indications show that he was worthy and should have been a first-round pick. And staying with the Knicks, Frank Nielakina. Um I said last year in Stand By It, I would rather have Frank Nielakina than De'Aaron Fox long-term. And I'm very close to saying I would rather have Frank than Dennis Smith Jr. long-term. At worst, he's a guy who has the elite, above-average, no, elite all-NBA defender. He has that defensive skill, at worst. That is there and is going to be there, and he's going to be an all-NBA defensive player. As far as him offensively, 
I liked what he showed in Summer League as far as being aggressive. He was a guy who he would take the ball to the rim, he would shoot from the outside, he was looking for his own shot, being very aggressive. His playmaking and passing, I think, is very solid. I think people like to crap on it when I think it's at a very dependable, consistent level already. Um, but with that aggressiveness, I think for him the key is getting confidence in his offensive game. He's never going to be a lights-out three-point shooter, but it has the ability to improve. He just needs repetition, and he needs to be confident. He needs to be able to say, all right, I have the ball in the perimeter. I feel confident that I can drive the rim and score here. Or I have the confidence that I can pull up from mid-range and hit that shot. And in Summer League, he had the mindset of he was looking for his. He was looking for that shot. And that defensive ability we saw last year is still there now um, and is only going to get better. He's an all-NBA defensive type. If that offensive game jumps up a level because of confidence and just repetition, that's the difference between him being an average starter uh, and lockdown defender to an all-star quality point guard. Um, Because if he develops that consistent offensive game with his size and athleticism and elite defensive ability, he's going to be one of the best two-way point guards in the league. Look at you know look at De'Aaron Fox right. What De'Aaron Fox has elite athleticism and speed. He's not a good shooter. He's not the best defender. He's average. What is De'Aaron Fox's above average skill besides speed? There really isn't none. At worst, Frank Nealakina is an All NBA defender and could potentially have a solid offensive game to go along with it. I like that he was looking for his and being aggressive. And I think that offensive game, even if it's only a slight jump, him continually improving his offensive game is going to go a long way as far as the Knicks' long-term trajectory is concerned, as far as the difference in him being an average point guard to being one of the best two-way guards in the league. And then going along with Harry Giles here at that third spot, um, as far as things in summer league that impressed me, um, he's a guy who I saw as last year, and I thought he was a modern a perfect modern backup NBA center. Um, a guy who could protect the rim, get that ball in the paint on lobs and score, and be able to hit a mid-range shot with consistency. We saw this in Summer League this year. That interior scoring was there. The ability to alter to defend the rim was there. He got dunked on a, a decent bit, but that defensive ability was there. One thing that really impressed me was he at times was able to shoot the ball from three. He had never showed that before. That mid-range shot that I, we knew that we knew was there, he showed. That three-point shot was a new development. I looked at Harry Giles coming out of college, even with all the injuries, as a guy who could be a very good, dependable backup center. Consistent lob threat, good defense, good rebounding, um, and could hit an open mid-range shot if he had it. If that three-point shot is a consistent part of his game... Um, and he can improve and become a really stout defensive presence as far as, you know, past being a solid defensive presence. As far as a modern backup NBA center is concerned, Harry Giles could be among the league's best. Um, we really forget just how good this guy was in high school and how good he was as far as being the top guy in the recruiting class with him and Jason Tatum. And the talent is there. And we saw that in summer league that when he is healthy and he gets the chance to go on that floor... He has the outside shooting, the mid-range shooting, the offensive paint or the offensive game in the paint, and solid defensive ability, and can be a lob threat. He has all the traits you'd want in a solid, dependable backup center. The talent's there. There's no question. It's just a matter of him staying healthy, and it's also a matter 
of how many consistent minutes he'll be able to get to allow himself to grow to the fullest extent because of the Kings' glut of bigs on that roster. Um, but overall, I was so impressed by Harry Giles. Um, every trait he had, you'd like to see those dunk. He got dunked on a decent amount. You'd like to see that get reduced. You'd like to see that three-point shot become super consistent. Um, but overall, how could you not be impressed with what you saw in Harry Giles? He was much more impressive than the guy I'm going to get into next from Sacramento, Marvin Bagley. Marvin Bagley, I said this before the draft, is a tough guy to build around because I'm not really sure what position he plays. And offensively, he can get buckets, but he only has one hand. Um, he can't do anything with his right hand at all. If you force him to his right, he's completely ineffective. The jump shot was not as consistent and efficient as we would have liked it to have been. Um, coming out of college, seeing it in summer league, it was not really there to the fullest extent. And the defensive worries that I had were magnified and shown to an extreme extent. He doesn't really have a position that he can guard because he's not, he's not, he can't play five because he'll just get banged around and bullied. He can't guard fours because he's not, a, he's, he can't really guard fours. I was going to say he's not athletic enough, but he is. But he doesn't really have the defensive ability to guard fours. And the idea that he could even play three is preposterous. He's a defensive liability at this point. And in order to compensate for that, he has to be a walking bucket, which is what we thought he was going to be coming out of the draft. But if Summer League was any indication, he is not that. Um, he needs to develop a right hand badly because if he does not develop that right hand, defenders are just going to force him to that right hand mercilessly. You can't be an MB a, a go-to scorer in the NBA with one hand. He is too dependent on that left side, and he needs that three-point shot to be more consistent. And I don't really know if he has the ability, which he had in college, to get the ball in the perimeter and really just get his own shot at will. I don't see that necessarily being a possibility in the NBA. Um, even still... If he develops that right hand, he's going to become close to a walking bucket offensively. If that three-point shot becomes more consistent and efficient, like it was more so in college than in summer league, he has the ability and potential to become a, he has the potential to become a walking bucket. But that defensive deficiencies that he has is going to make it very, very tough for him to be a plus player who can really consistently and confidently build your roster around. These are the things that I said as far as building your roster around him, what position he plays, that's what I said before he got drafted, and Summer League really just magnified that and really showed it um, clear as day. Let's go to Trey Young, um, really the most polarizing player in the draft class and in Summer League. He, yes, the, the struggles he had from three starting off in Summer League are very well documented, but by the last couple of games, his three was hitting, and more so than anything else, what impressed me with him is if he wants to get to the rim, he can do so very well. He gets to the rim at will. And people like to focus on his long range and his jacking up of three-point shots. But, again, the aforementioned ability to get to the rim. But also, this is an elite playmaker who is a great passer with great vision. He's so much more than just a three-point shooter. And I know he's very small, and I know he's always going to be have to be hidden defensively. And he has to be, to be, you know, a plus player, he's going to have to be what Isaiah Thomas was on Boston two years ago. But 
he is more than, as I mentioned, he's more than a three-point shooter. He was very impressive as far as being a playmaker and having good court vision to make those around him better. Um, that three-point shot has to be consistent. It can't be all over the place. The calling card for Trey Young is his ability to be a poor man Steph Curry in that a dynamite long-range shooter or just pure scorer who also has elite passing ability and court vision. The playmaking and passing was there. The ability to get to the rim was there. And in the last couple games, that three-point shooting was there. He can't have spurts where his three-point shot doesn't fall for two, three, four games like it did in Summer League. Keep that three-point shot consistent. With his passing ability, playmaking ability, and his ability to get to the rim, I think the people who harp on him for being nothing more than a chucker, they're wrong because there's so much more to him. And I think it's going to take time for him and for Atlanta as far as how do you properly hide him on the defensive end? How do you get the most out of him with him being a negative player on one side of the ball? Um, but I think there's a lot to like with Trey Young. Again, the size deficiency and the defensive deficiencies are never going to be able to be corrected. He's never going to be a good defensive player. He's never going to get any bigger. And he's just going to be a small guard. But if he has the ability to have that lights-out three-point shooting combined with the playmaking ability and getting to the rim... That is a very dependable offensive point guard. You, fig- you figure out how to hide him on the defensive end later, but he has the ability to be a good offensive all-around point guard. So much more than just a three-point shooter, and I think that that idea, if people really watch the tape, watch the games, and really sink their teeth into it, you can see that he impacts the whole game offensively, and he's not just a guy who can only do anything when he has the ball in his hands to shoot or just hangs around and doesn't move off the ball when he doesn't have the ball in his hands to shoot it. He's consistently making those around him better and then can also drive the offense as far as scoring output. It's just a matter of consistency with the shot and how well he can be hidden defensively. But I think that the ability for him to be what Isaiah Thomas was on Boston two years ago is definitely there, and I think that there is a chance that he could be better than that. Again, has to keep it all refined and consistent, but there is a possibility for that. Let's go to Phoenix. I was not impressed with DeAndre Ayton at all. Uh, for the type of player they made him out to be, this is a guy who you'd have to throw the ball into on the paint, and he just bullies his guy, backs him down, pounds him, and gets his shot at the rim. And on the defensive end, um, is able to alter shots at will. We know and came out of the draft knowing that he is a not a good defender. He's a guy who significantly needs to prove on the defensive end to be the type of center that he is advertised to be, the mold of Joel Embiid. So his not great defensive performance in Summer League was not to be unexpected because he does not have that defensive ability. However, his offensive performance was very underwhelming. He didn't really take the initiative on just bagging guy, or, um, backing guys down and just banging in the post and really just getting to the rim and just banging him down and getting that shot at the rim. Like, he was a guy who got the ball like 15 feet away from the rim, faced up, took some shots, didn't really force the issue um, offensively in the paint. It was a little passive, didn't really affect any shots at the rim defensively. Um, I was really underwhelmed. I wanted this guy, I wanted to see him just get the ball and pound the guy guarding him and just get to the rim and dunk or get easy layups. I don't want to see this guy getting the ball and settling for mid-range jump shots. I don't want to see this guy being passive and looking to pass when he doesn't get good position. I want to see this guy bully the guy defending him and get good paint and interior position. 
He did not make the effort to do that, and he was not successful in doing that at all in Summer League. Too passive, and if he's going to be the type of center he was um, advertised to be, with his defensive, I guess, lower capabilities defensively than guys like Embiid, who he's compared to, the offensive output has to be just like Embiid's. Um, He can't be shooting the ball from mid-range and three more often. He's got to be beating the shit out of guys as far as getting position on them in the paint. And he didn't do that in Summer League. I don't know why, but against inferior competition, if he's not able to do that or is not doing that, how can we confidently say that that is going to be the case against NBA talent? Again, takes time, obviously, but to be the first overall pick over Luka Doncic um, and to not be the sort of dominant offensive center that he was advertised to be, there's a little bit of concern to be had in that. And then keeping on with Phoenix, Dragon Bender, um, in his third year in the league now, he was playing the summer league. I had so much, um, I was so high on Dragon Bender, still am, but he just was terrible in summer league this year. I don't know if summer league is just not conducive to the type of player that Bender is, but he looked lost. He got crossed up and got his ankles broken a few times. Look like a deer in the headlights out there. In theory, Bender should be a guy who can move really well laterally, can shoot the ball from the outside, can effectively play in the paint, and can handle the ball well at an extremely good level for a guy of his size at seven foot seven one. But he just looked lost out there. And these past few years, he has been a negative plus minus player and a negative as far as uh, wind shares and usage and all that. This is not a plus player. This is a guy who is still incredibly raw and was always going to be a project. But we're three years in here now, and he was getting cooked in Summer League. Again, you don't want to put too much stock in Summer League, but for a guy who's in his third year who has not shown what you wanted him to show in past years, even though you know he's a project so it's going to take time, not a positive development. I still believe in Dragon Bender. I think he can become the player that I and many others thought he would. But this summer league was not a step in that direction at all for him. And if these struggles continue early into the season, there's a very strong possibility that this guy is not going to get the minutes consistently needed to become that player that I that I and many others think he can and should become. Because Phoenix now, they're not a you know, they signed Trevor Reza for one year for 15 mil. They're gonna try to win. They're they're not gonna be you know all out in uh, all out in the chase of winning, but they're gonna try to win games as opposed to just merely, you know, getting the worst record possible and developing their players. They're gonna try to win games whilst their young players develop. If Bender does not show anything in that early part of the season, plays like he did in summer league, how does he factor into this season getting consistent minutes? And how does his lack of minutes that could potentially occur this year? How can he become better long term? It's a really weird situation. I really feel for Bender because he had so much promise coming out uh, from Maccabee Tel Aviv, and I still think that player that we all thought he can be, this inside-outside threat who could handle the ball and play good defense against three different positions, I think that player is in there. It's just a matter of I don't know how you get it out at this point. Overall, for me, um, looking at Summer League, looking at this whole offseason, um... I think one thing is clear if you look at the Cleveland Cavaliers. Colin Sexton has a legitimate chance to be the Rookie of the Year this year. He is going to have the ball in his hands 
more so than any other rookie in the league. This is a guy who's going to drive every single off, well, not drive to the basket, but he is going to, how do I phrase this? He is going to steer the offense every single possession. This is a guy who's going to play 30 to 35 minutes a game, have the ball in his hands the whole time. He's going to be allowed, they're basically going to live and die by Colin Sexton, and as they should. Let him figure out all the kinks in this game. Let him work on his shot. Let him be aggressive. Let him pass the ball and create for other people. Let him dictate everything you do offensively. We saw that incredible intensity defensively. I know people love to point to the clip where he's flexing against uh, Josh Hart in the fi- in the semifinals of Summer League. His intensity, his drive, his killer instinct, his athleticism. Just put the ball in Colin Sexton's hands and let him go to work. That's what they're going to do. And... Whether it's him being really good and efficient or him being good but having the ball in his hands so much that it ends up being stat padding. I had a friend say to me that they thought he was going to be the rookie of the year like right after the draft because they don't think that Doncic will have the ball in his hand as much even though Doncic is a much better player. And initially I was skeptical, like, oh, it's definitely going to be Doncic no matter what. But now I see that the possibility for Colin Sexton after watching in Summer League and you look at the Cavs roster composition – he is composition. He's going to have the ball in his hand 95% of the time, 99% of the time he's on the court for probably 80% of the game. So stats are going to come, and he's going to be able to really, you know, the Cavs are not playing, they really should be playing for nothing besides keeping their pick. They have to trade Kevin Love. There's the potential idea of them trading Kyle Korver for a second-round pick and Jared Bayless to the Sixers which ultimately would just end up being a second-round pick because Jared Bayless is useless at this point. But you got to live and die by Colin Sexton. And I think they're going to, and I think that he is going to show out, and I think that he is going to be a really beloved player in Cleveland and by national media. And I think he's going to be really good. You know, if he can um, sort of corral that intensity a little bit, be efficient offensively as opposed to just getting a lot of volume and stat padding, which could end up resulting. Sky's the limit for Sexton. This year is the first step in that path. Um, And if Summer League was any indication, this is a guy who's going to have his heart on his sleeve every single game and go all out no matter what. And then keeping along with the rookie point guard um, idea, let's go to Shea Gilgis-Alexander from the Clippers. The thing I noticed with him is if he is able to develop a consistent mid-range shot and three-point shot, he's going to be lethal offensively. Great size, great vision, is good defensively because of that size and athleticism. He showed a lot that he would pull up from mid-range a lot, and he was pretty solid at it in summer league. He doesn't have a three-point shot yet. Um, But if he can develop a consistent three-point shot, improve that mid-range shot... um, This is a guy who can really be a three-headed player offensively in that he can create at a high level for his uh, teammates, he can shoot the ball from the perimeter, and he can drive and pull up. Right now, he's got two of those three. Give him a three-point shot. I don't know if that's ever going to come, but give him a three-point shot. This guy is going to be deathly offensively. Um, Very impressed by his court vision. His size really contributes well to him um, being able to defend ones and twos and being able to find other players um, offensively and create for them and have good court vision. He can get to the rim very well. Um, He really was heavily reliant on that mid-range pull-up game just because that three-point shot isn't there. Um, 
and maybe that three-point shot never comes. But if that three, if that mid-range shot keeps falling consistently, and that court vision keeps getting better and better, and he keeps going and drives to the rim, becomes super confident and aggressive, this is a very, very dependable starting point guard. He gets that three-point shot. This guy's an all-star. Um, was very impressed as far as you know how aggressive he was, how tenacious he was. Um, and really overall, there was a lot to like about him coming out of the draft. And I think everything he showed in Summer League coincided with the positive traits and reviews that people had of him as a prospect. And then last um, but not least, actually, no, wait, never mind. We got two more. Uh, let's go to Chicago, Wendell Carter. I mentioned earlier about Chicago now being extremely reliant on him on the defensive end of the ball. He impressed me a lot in Summer League. He was much better than I thought he would be. I sort of thought of Carter coming out of the draft as like this basic uh, big who did your basic big stuff as he can defend well and can rebound and can score in the paint, but there's nothing flashy or impressive about him. I was very, very wrong. The thing that is most impressive about Wendell Carter is his footwork. There was a play. I don't remember who they were playing. He got the ball uh, backing down his man um, on the baseline turned it to the other shoulder, went across the baseline, and went for a reverse layup or dunk. Um, He moves very well with the ball in his hands as far as his footwork is concerned. Defensively, he moves well laterally, uh, can protect the rim and guard the interior, can switch onto anyone from 1 to 5 because he has great footwork, good athleticism, great basketball IQ and instincts. Um, So in the sense of just being a stalwart defensively and a really dependable guy on that end, he has it. He has that inside game. Um... His footwork, like it's a small thing you would in terms of watching it, but if you see it over and over again, you look at his footwork and you realize this guy just has great basketball instincts and great basketball IQ and is going to be a better player than most thought. Like You had thought of him as a consistent, solid guy. Now you think of him after watching Summer League as an above-average guy because he's only going to get better from there. And... Chicago, you know, even though necessarily signing Parker and Levine didn't have it in mind, inherently it's putting a lot of stock and confidence in Wendell Carter's defensive ability to really be the foundation of that defense to hopefully allow their negative defenders around him to become a little bit better because they're confident with Carter in the middle and Carter sort of pushing out um, teams from getting into the paint, hopefully, because that perimeter defense is going to be so bad, but... He's able to move with guards. He's able to move well in getting all, in getting his shot offensively against other bigs guarding him. A lot to like with Wendell Carter. He's more impressive than I had thought coming out of the draft. Um, very excited to see how good he can become offensively um, and to see how much of an impact he can have on what is going to be a very bad perimeter defense for the Chicago Bulls this year. And then lastly... Let's go to Memphis. Jaron Jackson Jr. I mentioned him in the terrible game he had against Orlando because of how good Bamba and Isaac were. But Jaron Jackson Jr. has a consistent, high efficiently or highly efficient three-point shot. He has a good interior game in the post. He can play good defense in the post. He can step out onto the perimeter and guard guys. He can play the five with ease. He can play the stretch four role with ease. This guy is the perfect big for the modern NBA, and I thought that he was going to be a consistent modern NBA player for years. A lot of people thought he had monster upside, all-star upside, but I didn't see it. 
I was wrong. You know, again, you don't want to put too much stock into Summer League, but every trait is there, and he's already a high-quality player. This guy is going to be... You look at the Rookie of the Year race, to me, it's Doncic, it's Luka Doncic, Colin Sexton, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Kevin Knox. Those are the four guys. That is your Rookie of the Year race right there. Um, Jackson was so impressive. He has all the modern big NBA skills that you would want, and they're already at a high level. Um... You'd like him to beef up a little bit just so that when you can play him at the five, he can be a little stronger defensively, but good rebounding, can stretch the floor, can play in the interior, can guard bigs, can step out into the perimeter, has it all. Every trait you want in a modern big, Jaron Jackson Jr. has. And I think him playing next to Marcus Gasol, you know, this veteran former all-star in Marcus Gasol, that's going to help him a lot. Takes a lot of pressure off of him initially. So overall... Those are my thoughts um, on the major transactions of the offseason and Summer League. Um, I know I didn't get into the Lakers uh, roster composition and the Sixers situation, but I can get into that in a future podcast. Um, But yeah, so those are my thoughts on the Hawks, Oklahoma City, Bulls, Kings, the Nets, Summer League, you name it. Those are all my thoughts. Again, I am your host of After the Final Whistle, Brad Clear. Thank you for listening to this over an hour and a half episode of After the Final Whistle. Follow me on Twitter at Brad Clear, K-L-I-E-R underscore. Keep checking for more episodes of After the Final Whistle on podcasts.com. Um, if you want to get the iTunes podcasts feed for After the Final Whistle, go to the website on podcast.com and click the RSS feed. Um Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to Summer League. Shout out to the Atlanta Hawks and Travis Schlenk. Shout out to the NBA as a whole. Again, I'm Brad Clear of After the Final Whistle. And as always, goodbye and good night.